0: I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of the Future of Storytelling, and I'd like to welcome you to the 28th episode of the FOSS podcast and our final one for the year. When we first started planning this podcast back in 2019, we had no idea of the kind of year that was ahead of us. We originally intended this show to be a supplement to our yearly Future of Storytelling Summit. Instead, As the coronavirus hit, it became our main line of communication with our community and the rest of the world. And it soon became clear that we were producing it as much for ourselves as for you, our listeners. It's been so meaningful to not only be able to have these thoughtful conversations with our guests, but also to receive such encouraging feedback from so many. It's helped us overcome a sense of isolation and feel connected with all of you. Over the course of this year, we've been lucky to welcome an illustrious and wide-ranging group of guests. But all of them shared one common trait, a passion for great storytelling and a critical awareness of the power it has to change the world. Today, we're re-releasing one of our favorite episodes, my conversation with Oscar Eustace, the artistic director of the Public Theater in New York City. Oscar is one of the most influential voices in American theater, having helped to bring to the stage some of the most celebrated and pioneering shows of our time, from Angels in America, to Fun Home, to Hamilton the Musical. In his view, Theater is not only a form of artistic expression and entertainment, but a fundamental tool for human connection and social justice. He believes that art and great storytelling can unite people, create empathy, and bridge divides, leading us to a brighter and more equitable future. In light of the new year and the new administration, we're now facing a real opportunity to turn the page on divisiveness in our national discourse and turn instead towards bringing people together and creating a common narrative for America. Storytelling and the arts play a crucial role in doing this and no one speaks to this more eloquently than Oscar Eustace. I'm joined today by an icon of modern theater, Oscar Hustis, the director of the public theater here in New York. You've been involved in the creation of some of the most important theater of the last 20 years, whether that was Angels in America, Fun Home, and of course, Hamilton. And we are very honored to have you participate in this podcast and to be coming to the future of storytelling. So thank you. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. I feel less iconic already. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so let me start by asking you um, a question about your job. You're the artistic director at the Public Theater. What does that mean to you? What, what does that job entail? Well, this is an artistic institution,
1: right? So that the core, th- the mission that we have is an artistic mission. And that mission, in, in very broad sense, combines aesthetics, of course, with social justice. And it's my belief, and I believe it's the public theater's belief, it's the founding belief of this place, is that art and social justice are part of the same thing, that you can't talk about theater and social justice separately. You need to think of them as one thing. So my job is to implement the mission of this theater in the programming that we do, to pick the plays that I think exemplify what we mean by a theater of social justice, to choose the artists who are going to put on those plays, who I think are of the quality and passion, and heart and spirit that can do that, and to create the programs that will support the mission in the broadest possible sense. That's my job.
0: That's a wonderful job. It's a great job. And you do it incredibly well. Thank you. So let me ask you a question about theater. Uh, I've heard you say that it has an essential role in a democracy. Yes. Why do you feel that way? The art of the theater is the art of how people change. That's what
1: we're talking about when we're talking about drama. Drama is the art that not just talks about, but actually embodies how people change. That's what a drama is, change. And what are the tools by which people change? They change in the theater, in drama, by conflict, by different points of view, arguing with each other, producing... A new synthesis, a third point of view. That's what dramatic changes in the theater. And again, it's what democracy relies on if it's going to work. And finally, of course, the simplest thing that we ask for from an audience in the theater is that they care about the characters on stage. We're asking them to practice empathy, practice changing their point of view, seeing things through other people's eyes. And when that works, democracy works. And when it fails, as I'm very sorry to say that our country is demonstrating right now, the democracy begins to
0: fail. You've also mentioned the uh, importance of community in theater, that it's sort of in the DNA. Well, again, you know,
1: theater is, if you think of our society, there are very, very few places where people come together to experience deep things who don't necessarily agree with each other's ideas if you're going to a church everybody's already signed up to your doctrine if you're going to a political gathering you already support that politician but you can go to see a story in the theatre no matter what you believe and you can find yourself at theatres best sharing similar experiences with people who are strangers a few minutes ago. So when an audience is laughing together, it's so much better than when you're laughing by yourself. It's so much more joyous. When an audience is crying together, it has a quality of communal grief that reaches deeper and is somehow comforting, more comforting than private grief. So collectively experienced emotions of what we go for in the theater and hopefully you walk
0: out of a successful theater event
1: feeling part of the community of people who who watched it
0: together it certainly at its best reminds you of your shared
1: humanity exactly exactly and again we're we're facing a world where the real and present danger of people being able to live inside the echo chamber of their own ideas creates this bizarre kind of siloing of experience where people can't even agree on what's true anymore, much less what we collectively should think about it. So a place where we can collectively come together to try and forge shared experiences feels more valuable now
0: than ever. Do you think that theater gets to something that's more true? Is truth an important part as opposed to fiction?
1: Well, yeah, except a guy who tells stories for a living would never say truth as opposed to fiction. <laughs> um, they're, they're, we do docudramas. We do, we do plays that are about real pieces of history and use real people's words. We, we, we have that relationship with truth in some of our work. But the fundamental th- thing that any storyteller in my medium or any other medium has to claim if they're claiming a place at the grown-up's table of our culture is that you can tell stories that expose deeper truths and deeper questions and deeper contradictions about our existence than just reporting the facts. And when that happens, um, and when that happens successfully, it's, uh, we all feel it. It's an amazing experience.
0: The public was originally created, from what I understand, public theater, to have a kind of democratizing force for theater uh, maybe that idea that the people who go to theater should be able to be on the stage or to help write some of the shows. Uh, can you can you talk a little more about that and, and how that might be even more important today and yeah, how you sure. try to bring that to life?
1: It started as the New York Shakespeare Festival in 1954. And from that moment till 1967, what we did was tour free Shakespeare to the parks of New York all over the city. We reached to parks and to we went to where the people were And what we demonstrated is there was a massive appetite for free Shakespeare across the city. But in 1967, Joe Papp, our founder, realized that that idea of offering the canon up to the masses was only half of the democratic cultural equation, that in order to really complete that circle, we had to let the masses make the new canon. We had to turn not just the audience over to the people. We had to turn the stage over to the people. So this theater, so astonishingly enough, the first uh, show that Joe produced indoors, the first show that Joe produced other than Shakespeare, was the world premiere of Hair. Clive Barnes in the New York Times said wrote a terrible review and said that as if Mr. Pap took a broom and swept all the trash of the East Village onto the stage of the theater. And Joe blew up that terrible review and put it in the lobby because that was exactly what he was trying to do, put the life of the city on stage. And ever since then, that's what we've strived to do here at The Public, and
0: sometimes we've been lucky enough to succeed. At The Future of Storytelling, we think a lot about how technology is enabling a kind of democratization of the means of production and telling stories. Do you think that's true? Are you exploring ways in which technology can help democratize I am absolutely
1: sure that's true, and I'm not sure that we're ever going to participate in that. Because we're in the business of bringing strangers together to have common experiences in the same space. And so I think technology, every department of this theater uses technology constantly, except the artists, some of the you know, the designers do to some extent, but really technology affects how we market, how we um, uh, raise money, how we communicate, affects all those other areas. But then you get into the act and it's sort of the same thing that the Greeks were doing 2,500 years ago.
0: I had an experience this summer of entering into a theatrical experience that was done through um, virtual reality. Um, but multiplayer virtual reality. So you had many people in there as avatars simultaneously. Right. I think one of the big challenges that we face is that these technologies are still so early, so clunky, and that often the people making them aren't as in tune with the power of real storytelling, the craft of real storytelling, so that they can take the guest on an emotional journey. You, you've seen Draw Me Close, haven't
1: you? The National Theatre? Of course, yes. It's virtual reality mixed. With live presence of
0: audience and actors, so it's still theater. Um, just so that people listening understand, that's an experience where you're in a virtual space. You put on a VR headset and you're in there, but having a real time interaction with a with a live person who's being represented by a virtual being. There is a live interaction, but you're both in a virtual space. Sometimes it can feel like you're in a Pixar movie um, because you are an animated character and you're interacting in real time in a theatrical way with a real character. Um, One thing I do love about those, the potential of these new kind of immersive VR uh, slash live actor experiences is that it gives the person formerly known as the audience member an active role it lets you play in the space a little bit like some of the immersive theater shows do as well. What do you think about giving agency to the audience? Um, I think it's a spectacular idea
1: and I think that there are room for a thousand flowers to bloom in that field. I think any way that we can blur the distinction between who is creating the art and who is consuming the art is a valuable thing. The professional artist's in confrontation with the audience-consumer model, is, I think, really revealed itself to be stifling in a lot of ways. And it's part of a social structure which seems to suggest that artistry is something that is possessed by a few and that consumption is something that anybody can do. And we've made a number of experiments about Blurring that distinction between audience and, and artists, blurring the distinction between professionals and non-professionals, all based on a theory that artistry, both the desire and the talent and the need for that, is a basic property of being a human being. It's not something that's only a possession of a small, trained class. And that feels incredibly exciting and like a democratizing impulse that's that's I, I feel like is is nascent all over the world right now and figuring out how to do that and figuring out whether, again, technology will be the chief aid to that or in what way it will be an aid to that.
0: Those are really exciting things. I certainly look at the uh, phone, the smartphone, and think, here's a device that's enabling people to have creativity to make things and to share things in a way that the, the means of production were never mass available. And uh, so that doesn't mean it's all good, but it certainly means that there are a lot of people out there uh, making photographs or making videos or recording music or sharing their writing. Uh, that is a democratizing effect. Explain or share some of the uh, things that you're doing to democratize theater.
1: Um, the the single program I'm proudest of uh, that we've done over the last eight years is called Public Works, and this is a, a show that uh, this is a program that we do in collaboration with community-based groups in all five boroughs of New York, uh, serving underserved populations of various kinds. The Fortune Society in Queens, which primarily serves formerly incarcerated people, Children's Aid Society, um, Domestic Workers United, the Union of Domestic Workers, uh, Dream Yard, a kids' art center in the Bronx. We, co- we pair with these community organizations. We form year-round thick three-dimensional relationships that involve us doing classes, us bringing their constituents to the theater, us doing potlucks. To So we actually create community relationships and then once a year, We perform these large celebratory pageants in Central Park at the Delacorte Theater where we do Shakespeare in the Park. 2,000 seat theater, the most beautiful theater in New York, which means it's the most beautiful theater in the world. Um, Open air in Central Park with a cast of 200 plus people, a small handful of the best actors in New York, the Tony Award winning actors, and then a huge group of community participants who make this show together we have affiliates around the country, and even in uh, abroad, the National Theatre of Great Britain has adopted the public works program. Uh, in Dallas, in Seattle, in Detroit, and this year we added 14 more associate theaters. It's this this idea
0: of turning everybody into creators. That's amazing. And does that program also go into... Uh, prisons or
1: we we actually have another program that does that, which is our mobile unit uh which now um has been reborn as of the last decade as an extremely stripped down almost always Shakespeare play, which we can perform anywhere with uh, the lights on anywhere that has a floor and chairs for an audience to sit. And so now twice a year, and soon three times a year, we take shows to prisons, to halfway houses, to the most unlikely and inaccessible places, meaning that where the audiences have the least access to uh, work, and we perform. The work we do in prisons just, it, it is so inspiring. Because once you've performed Shakespeare for a prison audience, you realize that humans' need for these stories is as basic as their need for food and shelter and sex. By the end, these audiences feel like they own Shakespeare. They feel like they've been invited to a place at the table of our culture, which is just, uh, again, tremendously inspiring thing to be part of.
0: It speaks to that um, fact that stories are a common language of our species. They're, I, I always say they're, they're the programming language of the human species. They're how we learn about the world, how we learn how we fit into the world, how we learn about ourselves. And you don't have to be exposed to formal theater to uh, to have grown up with stories being that fundamental to you.
1: And, you know, it, stories are fundamentally democratizing because you say once upon a time metaphorically or you actually say the words. And everyone from a five-year-old kid to the most educated doctor can enter into the story. And with Shakespeare, there's a million different levels you can appreciate him on. And there's so many riches that, you know, I've lived my whole life with those 38 plays every day. And I'm still learning things from every one of them when I when I hear it again. But it's democratizing because you don't need a degree. You don't need to have seen it before. You don't need anything at all except your humanity and a willingness to listen to enter into those stories. And that's that's what's so important about it because we're, we're
0: all equal in the face of a good story. Beautifully said. And do you believe that theater, and I will go one step farther, storytelling has that ability to help weave us back together as a nation? I've experienced
1: it. I've experienced it. You know, every day of my professional life, and I've experienced it specifically on the tour that we created to respond to this perception, which is in the fall of 18, we toured Lynn Nottage's brilliant play Sweats to rural counties in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. We played in union halls and churches and food pantries. We played for audiences that were politically diverse, racially diverse, economically diverse. And again, the great majority of them, not theater goers. And what I saw as those people identified with the folks on stage, the, the, the sense of Depth and commonality they experienced. And then we would have these fantastic post show discussions. And I say fantastic because they were incredibly deep. They were non ideological. Nobody in any of the city talked about who they voted for. Nobody said the words Democratic or Republican. Nobody talked about our skill in making a play.
0: They talked about their lives. And I've seen that so many times myself. We do a thing um, at the Future of Storytelling called the Story Exchange. It comes from an organization called Narrative 4. And you, you get people telling their own personal stories. You put them into pairs, and one shares a story and the other shares their story. But then each of them has to stand up in front of the group and tell the story of the other in first person. Beautiful. And it creates an incredible emotional and empathetic connection. Uh, but simply once you remind people of what's inside and the tremendous amount that we have in common as opposed to exaggerating the small amounts that we have that divide us, you 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 remind us of, of our humanity and our common humanity.
1: Aristotle said, the earliest and most pleasurable form of learning is imitation. And it is what kids do. They play characters. And by playing them, They start to feel like they own them and can inhabit them. And it's the same thing for us as adults. It's when we either actively get up and play somebody else or if we just, in our mind, imagine, identify with them, care about their experience. It changes who we are. It expands our own self.
0: And boy, do we need that. I think we need a department of storytelling (laughs) maybe this needs to be a national emergency or priority Mm, yeah i think
1: i i I would advocate for um a department of storytelling that seated thousands of different storytellers in different places because one thing we really don't
0: want is somebody telling us what the truth story is we we want to let a thousand stories bloom Exactly. So let me ask you, what, what advice would you give to storytellers today? And, and when I say storytellers, I do mean it broadly. We have a big umbrella at Faust and we're looking to bring people from many disciplines. But, but the core of what makes great stories, I don't think changes really from medium to medium. What I say to storytellers all the time
1: is don't think small think as big as you can think. Look how big Shakespeare thought. Because in Shakespeare, there's no such thing as a private relationship. Two people never have a relationship that doesn't involve their parents, their families, their country, their prince, Their political position. Everything is seen in the web of society. He also, he does the thing that Lin-Manuel Miranda did so brilliantly in Hamilton, which is take the language of of common people and elevate it into verse. And by doing so, give tremendous nobility to the people speaking the verse. And it's so important that one of the things the stage can do is take people who are seen as the objects of history, the the, the the enemies, the others, the not and make them the subjects of history, make them the heroes of their own story. And every great breakthrough in the theater for me has been accomplished by somebody taking center stage and getting to be the hero of the story who we previously have not thought of as heroes, who have been uh, consigned to the margins. And that seeing the noble in the mundane, seeing the big in the small, writing the stories of, you know, it can be your father and mother, but seeing them in their biggest aspect.
0: That to me is the thing we want storytelling to do right now. I think that's a beautiful way to end this conversation. Thank you so much, sir. This has been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on our storytelling journey over these past eight months. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our podcast as much as we've enjoyed making it. And if you have, please be sure to subscribe to and rate our podcast and share it with a friend. I'd like to give a special thanks to Oscar Eustace for his inspiring conversation. And a big thank you to our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. We're going to take a few weeks off at the beginning of January. So we hope you'll check out some of the past episodes you might have missed. We'll be back in late January with more conversations on the future of storytelling. Until then, be safe, stay strong, and story on.